Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. My name is Ronan Kavanagh, and I'm joined today by our Research and Advisory Director, TJ Conway, who's going to share with us some insights from his recently released Energy Transition Macro Outlook, Post-COVID Acceleration. TJ, can you first tell me um, what this report aims to do and why that's relevant? Sure. And thanks again for having me, Ronan. Um, our, our macro report focuses on the trajectory of the energy transition. Uh, so we synthesize our work across our key focus areas from technology to policy to market dynamics and competitive trends to lay out the likely pace and shape of the energy transition. And we present medium-term scenarios to help our clients understand how we expect this transition to unfold and what underlying dynamics and signposts they should look out for. Um, not surprisingly, this, this specific report focuses on the nature of the transition as we emerge from the pandemic. Now, TJ, of course, we've talked before about COVID hastening the low-carbon transition, but you're pointing here potentially, aren't you, to even faster acceleration in this analysis. Can you explain that to us? Yes, yes, we are. So we, we, we already saw momentum growing, but our, our latest analysis shows the pandemic supporting an even faster shift. So in our core scenario called Accelerate, the energy transition gains momentum due to the structural megatrends that we've seen uh, for several years, as well as proximate factors tied to the pandemic. So first, uh, technological advances have persisted despite the crisis, and, and these trends will continue. We expect proven low-carbon power and battery technologies to become more competitive and widespread, propelling the transition forward more rapidly. Second, policy conditions will be increasingly supportive as leading governments maintain climate priorities throughout their post-COVID economic recovery plans. Uh, and underpinning this are popular climate concerns, which appear to have consolidated with COVID-19's existential threat. Uh, third, the oil demand outlook remains weak in this, uh, in this scenario, and that is led by lasting changes we expect in consumption patterns. So these behavioral shifts, for example, in flying and commuting uh, will, will likely bring forward the peak potentially to even before 2030. And then the final point is, is that investor pressures have continued rising throughout the pandemic. Uh, and that's due to poor sh short-term performance uh, and that's feeding fears about companies' long-term resilience as well. Indeed. Now, let's look at some of the drivers you've highlighted in the research. Now, you mentioned demand destruction. I mean, it's not just immediate, but longer term as well, which has clearly got to be a, a big factor for the oil industry. Yes, correct. We, we expect behavioral shifts to affect the oil demand trajectory, uh, both muting, muting the recovery and bringing forward the peak, as I just mentioned. In addition to this, it's, it's also important to make a distinction between what is what we expect is likely to happen and also the perceptions of peak demand. And, and peak demand, as a, the perceptions of peak demand have, have also gained even more traction. Um, the emphasis is still on oil demand concerns, but doubts uh, about a ga gas demand post-2030 are also beginning to creep into these perceptions. Uh, recent industry scenarios by BP, for example, uh, point to accelerated peak demand for oil and, and even gas, um, potentially. Um, perceptions are Im important because they have a, an impact on how companies and other actors respond. So for companies you know, announcing bold transition strategies to CapEx allocations, 
you know, these are all in response to expectations of, of, of future, the future demand outlook, uh, at least in part. And then that brings me to the final point, that these peak demand worries could actually result in insufficient investment and a supply crunch in the next few years. But in our base case, the Accelerate case, uh, even if we see balances tighten and, and propping up prices uh, in the short term, we do not expect these conditions to last. Um, relief for oil and gas producers would, would be temporary and, and could even further fuel the energy transition. Now, looking more broadly at the energy transition, it's very interesting to note that you see the growing importance of technological progress here. Yes, indeed. Uh, steady advances in, in the competitiveness of low carbon technologies led by power generation and transport are the key structural drivers. Uh, and we, we see a, a series of inflection points pointing to an ex, sort of an acceleration of these trends uh, in, in, in even the next you know, few years. And by, by mid-decade, we could see you know, the falling costs of solar, wind, and batteries spurring faster growth in renewable power and electric vehicle sales. Uh, renewable costs, we expect, will reach parity against coal and gas and power generation across major markets during this time. Uh, while improving battery technologies will expand uh, electricity storage options, as well as accelerate electric, electric vehicle uptake. Now, policy is very important too, with this too, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, these technology and market factors um, intersect with policy. So in, initiatives include heightened efforts to roll out renewables, electrify transport, and decarbonize the industry. Uh, and, and policy support for the transition is building. We see various governments poised to enact green economic recovery plans. We've, we've all you know, seen the, the China's big um, 2060 carbon neutrality goals uh, showing its consistent strategic focus on the energy transition. Uh, and then in a sign of gathering momentum, you know, since Xi, President Xi Jinping's announcement, we've also seen Japan and South Korea set set the goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, and then there's the US and the, you know, we're, we're still kind of waiting to see what happens with the elections. But if under, under a Biden presidency, we could see the US uh, potentially reemerge as a leader in global climate diplomacy as well. Interesting, and we'll come back to that a bit later. But we've talked so far, far about the central accelerate scenario, but we could of course see it go faster or slower. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, sure. And, and on balance, I think we see the risk more weighted to the upside, in other words, toward, toward an even faster uh, acce uh, acceleration. So in our boost scenario, we see the potential for a more rapid disruptive transformation emerging this decade uh, through a self-reinforcing -re cycle of key developments. So this would include uh, increased policy ambition uh, with a re-engaged United States leading global efforts to swifter advances in emerging technologies like hydrogen and CCS or carbon capture and storage. And then three, an even faster reallocation of investments toward green options. So it's creating this sort of virtuous circle or cycle. Uh, even, even in our less likely downside scenario, which we call blowout, uh, so a slower transition, we see little room for industry complacency. So even though the transition may falter this decade, uh, climate pressures would continue to build. 
And that, that would set the stage for an even more disruptive transition in the 2030s. So, you know, there's no room for complacency uh, across all of our scenarios. Now, this is going to have big implications across the board. I mean, it's feeding into investor pressure particularly, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Climate-related investor pressures on the oil and gas industry have continued rising throughout the pandemic uh, as concerns about companies' resilience have grown. Uh, Investors are now pressing companies to set intermediate targets, uh, outline energy transition strategies, and execute on those strategies. Now, in terms of how companies are responding, it's no secret, you know, this increasing divergence in the industry. What do you see here? Sure. So we are seeing European companies stepping up their activity. And they, they've shifted from simply outlining long-term emissions ambitions and medium-term strategies to executing on these goals and plans. Uh, there's, there's already a large gap between leading European firms and U.S. majors in independence and this has widened even further this year. Uh, we, we expect this will actually invite increased scrutiny of lagging responses on the part of uh, major U.S. firms. And looking beyond, I mean, those firms, beyond the listed companies, what about N- NOCs? Sure. So NOCs may be more insulated from investor pressures uh, if they are not traded, for example, although many are. Uh, but, there are but they are not immune uh, either. Uh, the non-traded companies, you know, they, they face pressures from their own governments, um, who many times have also set uh, bold uh, ambitions through their through the UN process, the, their NDCs, uh, private investors, especially for traded NOCs, but also project partners and consumers uh, influence their strategies as well. Uh, so even as strategies become more differentiated, each firm will face its own challenges. For the U.S., for the for the European companies, they really must deliver on their transformation plans. There's the execution component now, delivering profitably, especially, while U.S. Uh, firms and NOCs need to prove the viability of the adaptation model, adapting their oil and gas portfolios to a lower carbon future. Great. Now, you mentioned the European majors. Let's focus in a bit more closely at that if we can. I mean, what do we need to watch from them now? Sure. So as I was saying, they, they, need, to, they need to quickly show they can deliver on, on these changes. And they face the, the, the twin challenge of promising radical change by 2050, but also easing stakeholders' immediate doubts about their plans. So they will see growing sc- scrutiny of their underlying financial resilience, uh, with with challenges in cutting debt uh, in uh, in a very tough market for asset sales, and to their ability to deliver large scale profitable investment in new business areas across the electricity value chain and beyond. So, for example, you know BP stands out because it's juggling both high debt and radical plans, uh, and then you have other companies like uh, Shell. Which which needs to offer greater strategic clarity as well, and we're you know we're we're waiting to see what their plans uh, are are going to be uh, when they make uh, an announcement likely in, in February. Uh, a faster transition could also raise questions uh, for for various companies, Total, Any, Repsol, and others over the central role of gas and LNG in their plans. 
Now, looking across the Atlantic, I mean, the US firms, of course, haven't been as progressive on climate, but that doesn't mean they're not facing pressures, are they? I mean, how do you see this evolving? Certainly not. So we see US investor pressure, uh, you know, following a similar trajectory to Europe in in the coming years. Uh, We expect that, you know, they will be shifting from disclosure to scope one and two operational emissions, and then potentially turning to scope three or end use emissions. And if that's the case, you know, even more advanced adaptation plans, like, for example, ConocoPhillips's new uh, operational emissions targets may not be sufficient uh, to, to meet these investor demands. Uh, some, some majors will likely seek to avoid the question of scope three emissions, but it is, it, it is important to emphasize that, that absolute scope three reductions would require U.S. firms to uh, massively deploy negative emissions technologies, uh, which are generally still unproven, or consider deep cuts to their overall production of oil and gas. And these types of radical strategic considerations are in many ways not dissimilar for what Euro- European majors are, are grappling with, even, even if the, the, they're not necessarily going, these U.S. players are not necessarily going to focus so much on the electricity value chain, for example. And of course, I mean, the U.S. majors are having to grapple with the societal context as well, aren't they? Yes, uh, this is this is a this is an important issue. So rising rising social concerns will pl- will pose growing risks for the U.S. oil and gas industry, re- sort of regardless of of, of uh, the, you know, the the evolution of, of U.S. policy. So these trends could accelerate with a, a, a victory by by Joe Biden in, in the election, but they, they will likely play out regardless of the U.S. election results. And then in addition to that, policies from outside the U.S. can have an impact on U.S. firms. For example, European border adjustments could, could hit LNG exporters. And we may already be seeing signs of this with Angie delaying a, a potential $7 billion deal to import LNG from next decade's Rio Grande Grand LNG project that we saw just in the last in the last couple of weeks. Yes, and you mentioned the U.S. presidential race, which we'll have to come to now. Now, of course, record, we're recording this podcast a day before the election itself, so you know events risk overtaking us. But it's fair to say it's going to be pivotal moment. But TJ, with Biden ahead in the polls, what would a win for him mean for U.S. climate momentum? Or a second term for Trump, for that matter. Right, right, right. So if we start with Trump, so if, if Trump wins a second term, we expect, expect that climate will remain a low federal priority. And that will serve to intensify, intensify the already highly polarized sort of U.S. US political s- scene. Um, but, but climate tre- pressures will, will keep rising through state and local governments, uh, the courts, investors and activists as well. So there are sort of many, many drivers of, of these pressures. Biden, Biden has put forth a, an ambitious plan to fight climate change, uh, on the other hand. And, and that, you know, that, is, that will be, as you said, sort of a, the, the, sort of the more pivotal uh, aspect of this. We, co- we could see you know, the, US, uh, the U.S. is uh, aiming to reach net zero emissions by 2050, and, his, and Biden's plan touches on practically every element of the energy value chain. So what, what do we see in these plans? What do they show? So these plans show that Biden, who is a 
a pragmatic, more moderate Democrat, has, has shifted left on climate issues in recent years to align with the rest of this, his party. Uh, yet he will take a pragmatic uh, approach on issues like, like hydraulic fracturing. Uh, and um, Biden's, Biden's scope for action will also hinge on uh, how the Democrats fare in the Senate. So the, the, the more bold legislation would require a Senate majority for the Democrats, which is possible, but still uh, very much up in the air. Uh, and even a slim Democratic majority may be insufficient to bring some moderate members on board to pass uh, sweeping climate legislation, depending on how that legislation actually um, turns out. Well, we shall see, Shafi, in the coming months. But turning now to the Paris Agreement, I mean, it's five years ago that it was reached, but this year's big talks, which were supposed to start just next week, have been postponed. Now, do you think that we're going to see this playing a more meaningful role going forward? Is the Paris process come to a stop? It's a good question. So progress on fully implementing the Paris Accord has certainly slowed at a time of rising urgency to step up action. With, with the world far off pace in keeping global temperatures within the two degrees Celsius um, rise above of pre-industrial levels. Uh, and now with COP26 delayed by a year because of COVID-19, there is a growing risk that the, the UNFCCC process will lose further momentum. Um, countries, while countries have committed to, to submitting enhanced NDCs before COP26, and over 100 have stated that they will, still I think less than 20 have actually done so. So we're not seeing them following through in terms of ambition then? No, and this is why leadership is so critical on the part of the China as well as the US. Uh, so Biden would, would swiftly rejoin the Paris Climate Accord and that would add wind to the sails of, of international climate diplomacy and the energy transition in general. Uh, China does seem to be rising to the occasion. President Xi Jinping has announced China will scale up its NDC. Uh, and, you know, as we've said already, Be Beijing aims to uh, achieve carbon neutrality by 2060 uh, and, and is also aiming for CO2 emissions to peak by 2030. So this, by the way, was the first time China had presented carbon neutrality goals. So this is significant and, and demonstrates the sort of consistent consistency on the part of China and, and the strategic uh, importance of these, this issue for, for the country. Indeed, another one of those moving goals and there's sorry, moving parts, and there's certainly plenty of them to keep our eye on. And this is why I suppose scenarios like this are so helpful, TJ, in laying out the possibilities. Certainly. This is, this is why we, we lay out those scenarios. Just given the level of uncertainty and the numerous drivers, it's, it's important to kind of think about various possible uh, futures and how to prepare uh, for, for all of those eventualities. Great. And thank you for helping to open our eyes to them. So that just remains for me to say thank you, too, to our listeners today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll tune in again for our next Energy Transition podcast. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com. Mm -hmm.